So today we are on the second part of the second leg of this being settled. Uh, we talked last week that there are certain things that need to be settled. It, it makes life simple. Uh, I don't wake up in the morning worried about whether I'm going to serve the Lord or follow the Lord or, or whether I'm going to church or whether I'm going... They're just things, because they are settled in my life, they're just no-brainers. They're, they're just not questionable. They don't, they're not... And so our problem many times in our world is, is that this, all this information that's thrown out there, so much of it is, well, what about this? Have you ever thought that this could be true? Most of it, 99% is not built in facts. It's just built in, well, what if this or what if that? And so what we want to do is when we talk about our Christian life is we want to find the areas in which we're settled. Last week, we dealt with the fact that Jesus Christ lived, that you, you just had to be, I guess the best way I can describe it, you have to be overly educated with ignorance. That's the best way I can describe it. Overly educated with ignorance. To not know that Jesus Christ was an actual person who lived and breathed and existed and his stories are historically written down. Now, you may not like the fact that he healed people. You may not like the fact that he walked the earth. You may not like the fact, but it's historical. It happened. It, they didn't just pick him out of the thin air and say, hey, let's just make him the Messiah. Hey, let's, he, he's, he's a good-looking guy. Let's just turn him into, you know, he's brown-haired, long, blue-eyed, and which is really not the way Jesus would look. But anyway, that's how they make him look on TV. But let's pick him out. Let's just choose him. That's not what happened. He was actually sent from heaven as the Son of God to walk among men to live on this earth. He was an actual person. The second thing that we have as far as being settled is the understanding that he died. This restore, historically, just like his life, the Romans, all the different people I mentioned last week, Josephus, others, they are historical records that, yes, he died. He was crucified. He died under Pontius Pilate. All of those records are set. But the question becomes, why? Because when you watch certain movies or certain things, you find that, well, maybe he didn't die. Maybe he just faked his death. And, and then moved to France and got married. And, you know, anybody watch the Da Vinci Code? That's about as far out there as you can get. And he became royalty, French royalty. No. He died. But see, that's what messes everything up. Because if, if he was that powerful, if he could walk on water, if he could do all the things that he said, then why die? Why even let someone kill you? Why allow all of this to take place if you have the power to stop it? If you have the ability to say no? Well, that's the question that transforms us from him just being a man to being who God called him to be. Go with me in your Bibles to Zechariah. In Zechariah... Chapter 13, verse 7, there's a unique scripture. And this scripture is just kind of thrown in there along with others talking about the Messiah. In fact, when we talk about Zechariah, Zechariah lived in a time when there was just a remnant of Jerusalem and, and everything laid in ruins. He was a contemporary with Haggai. Haggai and him were, were contemporary prophets at the time. Zechariah was much younger. He was a young prophet. He was a prophet that, that you would, would not expect. He was not aged. He was not old. But yet, he had a very clear ability to see visions that God gave him and was able to pen them, able to write them. So Zechariah foretells more about the Savior and in his prophecies than anyone, him and Isaiah, are the two greatest of prophesiers when it talks about the Messiah. When we talk about his prophecies, listen, we talk about his Christ's entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. That comes from Zechariah. When you hear the prophecy of the good shepherd, that's Zechariah. When you hear the betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, that's Zechariah. 
When you hear the hands being pierced, Zechariah. Christ being wounded in the house of his friend. Christ will be the priest and the king. All of these come from the book of of Zechariah. So all of these prophecies and many more come from his writings that Jesus fulfilled. He was an incredible foreseer of what was to take place. But there's one scripture that just kind of stands out. And in Zechariah 13 and 7, here's what it says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8 says it this way. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be what? Scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. This is a, 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 an odd scripture, but not really, because what he's foretelling is, is what God has to do. He's telling you the reason and the purpose of why Jesus has to die is because there's something that has to be paid. There's something that has to be done. There's a sword that is talked about through all the Old Testament. When it talks about the sword of God from the book of Genesis 6 on down, and when you hear about the sword of God, it's always referring to God being full of wrath or God not being able to take or see any more of what he's seeing. And finally, he takes his sword and he says, I need to make things right. I need to fix what's wrong. I need to fix what's, what's been done wrong. So all of a sudden throughout this, we see this. And here comes Zechariah. And he begins to talk about this sword. So number one, what is this sword? It is God's judgment. It is God's judgment that he swings. And anytime he swings it throughout history, it may be used by someone else's hands. Even this time when we talk about Jesus, it's not that God himself swings the sword. He uses the Pharisees. He uses the Sadducees. He uses the Romans. He uses the cross that's been created some 400 years earlier that was already prophesied at a time when crucifixion didn't exist. The prophecy was telling about a crucifixion when crucifixion was not even designed yet. But yet the prophet said, here's how he's going to die. Imagine how weird that would have sounded in their time. Like, what is this? What kind of death? There's no such death like that. But yet 400 years before Jesus comes, the Romans create this style of death. And yet here's what God uses. He said, I designed it. I made it. I formed it so that they could swing the sword that I intended them to swing. So this sword is something that was given by God. It was something that God designed. Second thing is this, is that it swung against it was swung against someone that he considered close. Listen how he says this, awake, O sword, against what? My shepherd. In Ezekiel 34 and 30, in chapters 34 and 37, in John 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. So this sword, who is it going to be swung against? Not people, not, not, not the whole world, not, not nations. He said, no, I'm going to take this sword and I'm going to put it and I'm going to face it against one person, my shepherd. Jesus throughout his life says, I am the good shepherd. I am he. I'm the one that he's talking about. The third thing we find out about this sword is this, is when. When's he going to use it? Well, go in your Bibles to Matthew 26 and 31. Listen to what the Bible says. This is Jesus. This is him at his last night, before they come to get him, before they come to arrest him, he's standing there and he's looking at his disciples and listen to what he says. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the what? The shepherd. Jesus is pulling from Zechariah. And he's saying, do you know Zechariah? You know the book of Zechariah. You know the prophecy. 
And I'm letting you know that tonight is the night that sword is going to be swung. I'm letting you know that tonight my father is relinquishing a sword that he's been holding for for as long as time has existed. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned, God has been holding this sword. And he is fixing to pour out upon me all the wrath that that sword has. That's why when we see the passion of the Christ and we think, man, that's, that's just horrible that they would pull his beard and pluck from his face, that they would take thorns and crush them upon his head, that they would spit on him, blindfold him and spit on him and slap him and ask him, who slapped you? Who spit on you? Go ahead. You, you can say who it is. They would tie him to a post and they would beat him to the point to where his organs and his back would be filleted that you could see them. When they'd mocked him, made fun of him, put robes on him and fakely bowed down to him. When Pilate himself couldn't find anything wrong and found one barbarian who was just a murderer and said, well, surely they'll pick Jesus because this guy's been healing people. And yet standing there, they say, give us the murderer. Kill Jesus. There is no length. There is nothing left on the sword by the time Jesus reaches it. When there's no more strength left in his body and there's nothing left but him to drag his own crossbeam up a hill to where they'll finally crucify him. He doesn't even have the strength to do it anymore. And while he falls under that, someone else has to carry his crossbeam, help him get to the place where there they will nail his hands, his feet to a cross and there hold him above the ground for hours and hours and hours. When he says, I'm thirsty, they give him vinegar. Everything they could do, God said, understand, they're not doing it. And that's the hard part to grasp. Is it, listen to me, the Romans didn't kill him. The Pharisees didn't kill him. His own father's sword is what killed him. His own father's judgment that had to be poured out is what was poured out on him. We always like to make it, well, they killed him. No. Listen, Jesus said to him, all of you will be made to stumble because of me tonight, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. That's why he stood before Pilate that next day, and Pilate said, do you not know I have the power to kill you? It's the only time Jesus ever defends himself, and he looks at Pilate, and he says, You have no power except that which my Father has given you. The only reason you have a sword in your hand is because my Father is the one that made the sword. And it's my Father's sword that you're swinging. It's not yours. It's not Rome's. It's my Father's. And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. We know what happens that night that even Peter denies him three times and curses and says, I don't know him. The rest of them go into hiding. Everybody leaves him. No one there but him. Standing between heaven and earth, he endures it. So why, Brother Lot, why why does he have to go through this? Why? Does there have to be a sword? Why does there have to be a cross? Why does there have to be? Well, go with me to Isaiah 53. And I'm going to read Isaiah 53 because it's just the only way to tell it. Isaiah saw it in a way that that most people in their whole lifetime will never grasp it. Because even this morning, many of you think, well, they, they killed him. No. It was him allowing his father to take his life. But here's what Isaiah said. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root cut off dry ground. And he, he has no form of comeliness. And, and when you, we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus was nothing of special looks or any abilities. He had no, 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 nothing that you would look at him and say, wow, he, this guy's incredible. God said, I didn't even make him beautiful. I made him of no just common report. Let's go on through. We're just going to read all the way through. Verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? God. When we looked at him that day, it's like, well, if he had been a good person, God wouldn't have allowed this. If he was who he says he was, God wouldn't allow this. Even Satan himself. Even the devil, the Bible says that if he had known what they were doing, they would never have done it. They wouldn't have allowed God to have used them in such a way. But what God was saying, you think you're doing it, but it's me that's doing it. You think that if I really loved him, I would save him. But because I really love him, I'm letting him go through and I'm letting him finish the work that he was called to finish. Surely he is born. He's carried our sorrows. We saw him esteem smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, verse 5. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. Everything I just told you was for a purpose. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with them the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I can't say it any better. Everything he took, everything he went through, everything he endured. Part of this story is a very sad part, but it's settled. It's not misunderstood. It's not mistaken. It's settled that there was one who came from heaven who gave his life for you, who the Father decided, I'm going to send him. And I know that as I send him, I'm, my sword that sits beside me one day will be risen against him. He will be stricken. He will be beaten, cut off from the living. He will be numbered among the transgressors. He will hang among thieves. He will die in a borrowed tomb. All of this will take place. But it's okay. Because it's what I chose for him. So go with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 18. Why then did Jesus die? 
Listen to what the Bible says. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer to themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, that he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. God, listen to that last verse. Now all things were of who? God. Who has reconciled us to himself. It's God who did the work. It's God who sent his son. It's God who allowed his son, Jesus, to die upon the cross. It is God who determined this was the greatest, the only way that he could redeem and bring his family back together. This was the price. So number one, Christ died for all mankind. Go with me to Romans 5 and 6. Here's what it says. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Think about that. When you didn't have strength to change, when you didn't have strength to turn over and live differently, when you didn't have strength to do anything else, it wasn't that Jesus lived, but it's that he died. That was the prize. The price for you to one day be strong. The price for you one day to go free. The price for you to say that I don't have to live the way I used to live and I don't have to be unto myself. I can be different than what I am. It took a price. In fact, the Bible says you were bought with a price. That price was Jesus Christ dying on a cross. That price was paid. So when we look at it, go to Hebrews 2 and 9. I'll show it to you one more time. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for who? Look at that person beside you and just tell them, say, you don't know how bad it could have been. We, we walk around all the time talking about how bad our life is. Let me tell you something. If there was no God that had held back what Satan wanted to do to you, you have no idea what your life would be right now. You think of those people that we watch on the 6 o'clock news who reject God and then their lives go to just such problems. With all those documentaries they write about people whose minds go so far crazy and do such crazy things and all this. Let me tell you something. The enemy didn't have you not listed among them. The only thing that stood between you being like that and you being on the six o'clock news and you having a life you don't want to talk about is the fact that Jesus decided that I would die for you. He drove the standard. That by grace of God, that he would taste death for every single person. Number two, Christ died to cover the cost associated with all the sin that you had done. Not all of what the enemy wanted to do to you, but all of what you've already done. Go with me to 1 John 2 and 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. It's already paid. There's no payment that's necessary. It's just like if I told you, look, go up to Wendy's and get a burger and get some fries and a drink and tell them that Pastor Lot said you can get it. I don't know if they'll give it to me. I don't. It's already paid. All you have to do is trust in it. Believe in it. 
And Jesus says, listen, on the salvation level, this is all you have to do. It's already paid. There's nothing, nothing you can do. There's no cost on you. Well, then, it, then it's just free. No, be careful there. This grace-free stuff will get you in trouble. What he said is that if you realize what I've done, what I'm teaching you today, if you realize what I've done, then it's your reasonable sacrifice to give your life back to me to say, God, everything I ever am or everything I will ever be, it belongs to you. It's like one man that once had a restaurant and, and in England years ago, and he would give Christians, any person that came in that uh, was, a, was a true believer, worked in the church, did everything, I mean, just committed Christian and knew that they were a Christian, he gave them their food free. He just gave them their food free. You say, well, I don't see how he survived. I don't either, but he was successful. Maybe people just said, look, you give us food, but I'm going to give you money. Whatever they decide to do. But somebody came up to the register one day, and he opened the register, and when he did, there was a nail sitting right there in the register. And the guy asked him, why is there a nail, big old nail sitting there in your register? He said, because when I open this register every time, I realize what God has done for me. And it reminds me every time I open this register how much I owe him. That's why his life was so blessed. He understood grace. He understood God paid it all. But he also understood that because of what he did, I will spend the rest of my life trying to express my love for him. How do you tell someone you love them who's paid every debt you've ever had? How do you express you love them to someone who's already built you a mansion in a place you haven't even arrived yet? How do you express love to someone who says, I'll walk with you if nobody else will for the rest of your life. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but I'll be with you to the end of the way. How do you express love for someone who says you can ask whatever you will in my name? I'm giving you my checkbook. And whatever you have need of through your life, I'll meet your needs. How do you pay back someone like that? You don't. You can't. But you live every day of your life in gratitude for the price that he paid. Go with me to 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Here's what it says. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Number three, Christ died then to condemn the originator of sin. Christ died to accomplish something that nobody else could accomplish, not only on your behalf, but something that happened in the heavens that goes beyond me and you. Listen to what 1 John 3 and 8 says. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So when I look at you every Sunday, I say, go give the devil fits. It's your God-given duty. It's part of your job description. Because the whole purpose of him coming and doing what he did was to destroy the works of the devil. So anywhere the devil starts rising up, your job is to destroy his works, to bring truth where there's lies, to bring love where there's hate, to lift up a standard. Listen to how Hebrews says it, Hebrews 2 and 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through what? Through death. It was death that was required to accomplish what we have. There was no way around it. Likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had power of death. That is the who. That's your job. 
He said, I came to destroy every bit of work that he has. So the next time you're watching some horror movie or you're watching some TV program about some demonic spirits, you need to understand your whole job was to just make them look bad, to put them to shame. There's no power on earth that's going to be greater than what lives inside of you. We live our lives so much below what God intended. Christ died then that believers might not no longer live to themselves. That's what the Bible says in Corinthians. That we would no longer live to ourselves, but live unto Christ. What does that mean, Pastor, to not live? It means understanding what I've shared with you, that you would have the mindset that my life was meant to accomplish something. That my life was meant to make a mark for God. That Jesus did not die just to die so we celebrated at Easter. It's, it happened so that seven days a week, 24 hours a day, we are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. Let me see if I can show it to you one last way. Go with me to a scripture that you're going to know really well. John 3.16. John 3.16, can't be any simpler than that. But notice what it says. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave His only begotten Son. This, this one statement is the act in which God operates. What is God like? What, what is God's personality? What is God trying to accomplish? Number one is this, that Jesus was the ultimate expression of God's love to you. You want to know how much God loved you? You want to know how important you were to God? God looked through heaven and found the most precious thing that he had, his only son. Before the foundations of the world, to have you in his family. So that you could be part of his family, he looked through heaven and said, What can pay a price that will be so high that nothing, I'm not sure anything can pay it? And when he looked through heaven, there was only one thing in heaven that could meet the price of what sin and the enemy and Satan. And the devil and all the world had brought upon itself. He looked at his sword and he said, What could satisfy that sword? What could satisfy the wrath that I need to pour out? And he looked around. And the only thing that he found was stop right beside him. My own son. You want to know how much God loves you? He was willing to give the most precious thing that he had into this world and pour out the greatest amount of wrath that he's ever poured out just so you could be in his family. That's how much he loves you. I love it how they illustrate it when children say it. When children say it, it comes out like this. He says, what is, what is real love? What, what love is? And here's what a child would say. When my, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time. Even when now his hands have arthritis, that's love. This is what a child says. Love is when someone hurts you. And you get so mad, but you don't yell at them because you know it would hurt their feelings. That's love. If you ask a child, a child would say, love is in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening the presents and listen. A child would say, love is when the puppy licks your face even after you left him home all alone all day. That's what a child would say. God would say, 
Love is when I would give my only son so that you could be with me. The second thing about John 3.16 is this, is that Jesus was the extension of God's hand then. He, he knew He would be a, unable to, to fully be able to look at us and say, you don't know what I'm going through, but that can't be said anymore. When God extends His hand now and someone says, well, He's not going to accept me. He doesn't know what I... Let me tell you, the Bible says He knows you better than you know yourself. He not only knows your pain, but He knows who made you. Through Christ, He has someone who can look over and knows our troubles and our trials and our feelings. This morning, He knows your embarrassments. He knows your insecurities. He knows your hurts. He knows your feelings. He knows everything about you. He knows what it's like to be laughed at. He knows what it's like to be disrespected. He knows what it's like to think I won't be able to get through. He knows all the emotions, every emotion that could ever be felt. Jesus was bombarded with every single one of them. The Father made sure that Jesus could come back to glory and say, son, tell me about what it's like to be there. Explain to me. And now heaven knows what it's like to be here, to live here, to be a human, to go through what we go, to feel pain and torment. He's felt it to the highest degree and yet overcame it. The third thing that we find from John 3.16 is that Jesus now becomes the entryway for God's blessings. In John 14, he says it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except me. In John 10, he says this, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I know we have all these different things and all these different people and all these different theologies and all these Buddhists and Muhammad and, and Islam. And let me tell you something. None of them work. Because they're all built off of the same premise. Well, how do you know they don't work? Oprah Winfrey says you can get there a lot of ways. Well, Oprah Winfrey's a liar. And when you see her, just tell her, Pastor Lot said, you're just lying. There is no five ways to heaven. There is no 12 ways to get to God. Because here's the problem. There's no way you could ever create within your own mind or abilities to reach Him. In every other religion, it's about you trying to earn. Strap a bomb to yourself, blow yourself up, Allah will like you. It's all about you trying to get to a God. And if he's really a God, then you can't reach him. But what if God, knowing you couldn't get to him, said, I will come to you? That's why it's different than any other. Because God, knowing we couldn't reach him, reached down to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. I'll share it with you in a story. There's a man that I, I like. I love history. I love reading about people. And his name is Thomas Dorsey. You, you would say, I don't know who Thomas Dorsey is, but every one of you in this room do. A lot of times we just don't know the background. We just don't know... Thomas Dorsey was a songwriter. In fact, he was a jazz musician in his early life, in his 20s, until God got a hold of him, and, and Thomas Dorsey gave his life to the Lord. He wrote songs that many of you would know. My mom and dad sung a song that was written by Thomas Dorsey. How about you? And it, it would go like this. How about brother, how about you? How about sister, how about you? Well, I hope my Savior is your Savior too. 
Well, I said, Lord, just take and use me. That's all that I could do. And then I gave my heart to Jesus. How about you? I grew up hearing that song all the time. He wrote one maybe you would know a whole lot better. It was a guy by the name of Elvis Presley that wrote it. became his most popular song in his life. There will be peace in the valley. Yeah, that's Thomas Dorsey. In fact, Thomas Dorsey didn't start off as this great person. In fact, the most powerful song that he ever wrote, I want you to listen to his words, and I'm going to play it here, turn it up real loud where you can hear it, because he's an older man sharing his story. But this is Thomas Dorsey talking about one of the songs when his life was at a dark point. I left my wife sleep in bed, got in my car, and I went along. She was going to become a mother, and I was anticipating a great uh, happiness and great joy on my return. But I got to St. Louis, and about the second night in the meeting, a telegram boy came and brought me a telegram. I opened it, and it read, your wife just died. Come home. I couldn't finish the meeting. Finally, I got home to Chicago the next morning, and it was so. I found it all true. They never moved the body, and that chilled me, killed me off. I wanted to go back to blues, but after putting my wife away and the baby in the same casket, I went to the old poor old college in the music room there, Mr. Fry and I, and just browsing over the keys. And seemingly the words, like drops of water from a crevice of a rock above, seemed to drop in line with me on the piano. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord. And lead me home. Now God has blessed. I have another family. I have a wife, a son, a daughter, and a grandson about seven, eight years old. And the Lord has led me, and He will lead you. And I hope some way, somehow, if you don't sing, precious Lord, take my hand, you will learn to sing it and sing it with the feeling and the fervor. God bless you. And Keep you. Precious. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Help me stand. I am tired. I am weak. And I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to your light. Precious Lord, take my hand and lead me on. See, the next steady settled thing in my life is that not only did he live but he knows me there's nothing I ever go through or ever will go through there's nothing I ever face there's nothing you're facing this morning that he can't look at you and say I know what you feel I've been touched by that pain and you can come to me. Thomas Dorsey left for St. Louis, his wife pregnant and expecting to come home and have a baby. Gets the telegram that says your wife died. 
When he gets back, there she is, still on the floor. They don't even move her. They want him to make sure he sees her before. He goes to a college. Thomas Dorsey, I love how he said that. He said, I almost want to go back to the blues. That's what he was originally. Thomas Dorsey, in our day and age, we would say he's like Prince. In my time, Prince could play 17 different instruments, and he was one of the most gifted artists. In, in his time, Thomas Dorsey was one of the most gifted artists that was, that was alive. He could do anything. And in his mind, he thought, I'll just go back to the blues. I'll just go back to jazz. I'll just go back to doing what I do. He went to the college, sat down at the piano. And I love how he says it. He says, it's like water coming through a crack. The words just, you know what those words were? Those are words that Jesus says, I'll tell you how I felt. And I'll tell you the pain I felt when I had to lean on my father. This morning, I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what trouble, I don't know what pain, physically, emotionally, I don't know. I just know there's one who has went through everything that you've been through plus. And he says, I'll be there with you. I'll walk with you. Because my Father loved you so much, He sent me as a gift for you. I am your gift from the Father. Will you stand? Whoever you are in this room today, maybe you don't need to sit down at a piano. But you need to be in His presence. And to do that, you have to step out of what's comfortable. Thomas Dorsey that day didn't just go get drunk. He didn't just go back to a jazz bar. He didn't just go back to doing... He went somewhere he could just be alone with God. Just him and a piano. He didn't know who else was in the room. But we do. The one who said, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I'll be there. If that's you this morning, then you're going to have to do the same thing. You can't just sit there and say, well, I'll just, I'll just sit here and think about it. I'll just sit here and mull it over. I'll just sit here until it goes away. I like the way one writer said, he said, if time cured everything, Jesus would never have had to come. Time doesn't cure it. Only Jesus can cure it. So this morning, if that's you, if you need that moment with the Lord, if there's something physically, mentally, family, just where the enemy has fought against you, your job is to destroy his works. And you can't do that if you don't feel like he's destroying you. And God is saying this morning, I'm calling you. Come to my presence. Let me write a song on your heart. Let me write a song to you that gets you through your trial. I'm your gift from the Father. For God so loved you that He sent me. That if you would believe in me, you wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. If you're in this room right now and you say, Pastor, I need to come. I need, I need to spend some time with my Father. Then these altars are open. I want you to step out right now. Just make your way. If you're good, then that's wonderful. 
I'm not trying to force anything. My responsibility is to tell you at first that he lived. And secondly, he died. He died so that this moment right here can take place. He destroyed all the works of Satan. He destroyed all his power over you. He destroyed, took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. You don't have to live in any torment, any fear. He came that you be free. Freedom's your choice. Just like I said about Wendy's, if I said I paid it, it's your choice. Jesus says, I've paid it. It's your choice. I'm going to sing that chorus one more time. We'll dismiss. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me home, help me stand. I am tired, I'm weak, and I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me home. To thy light, take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. Father, this morning, for whoever it is that's here that needs this time with you, God, I speak that through the power of your Holy Spirit right now, you write on their spirit. You remind them who they are and who you are. That they're never alone. They're never defeated. They're never conquered. They are victors. And that it may feel at the moment, just at the moment, like the tide's against them. But God, the tide will change. Because greater is He that's in them than anything that's ever been in this world. And Lord, I thank you this morning. I praise you this morning that whatever need they need met, that it's done in Jesus' name. As they ask right now, as they ask right now, let it be done. Let it be given to them. Let the door swing open. Let the gate fly open. Let the window open. And let their answer arrive. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen.